0: I think back through all out history of over 2,000 years now, and I think about all the Christians and, and all the people who, who died witnessing about Jesus. And I'm so thankful that we have a God who loves us enough to not leave us the way we find him. To not leave us the way we were, but loves us enough to not only impute Christ's righteousness to us, but loves us enough to give us sanctification. He is a good God. So if you think back, last time I was up here, we had been discussing communion and discerning the Lord's body, and we had done parts one and two, and and here we are, and it is part three. And part three is about judgment. So, without any further ado, please first turn to First Corinthians while I tell you a little story. A priest and a taxi driver were waiting in line at the judgment at the pearly gates. Now, the taxi driver was first, and he went to St. Peter, and he said, I am Brandon Wilson, taxi driver in New York for 15 years. Peter looked at his list, and he smiled, and he said, Welcome, Mr. Wilkham. Take this silken robe and this golden staff and enter the gates of heaven. And the taxi driver walked through the gates wearing his silken robe and bearing his golden staff. And the priest then walked to St. Peter and he thought, well, if the taxi driver got that, wait till you see what I get. And the preacher boomed and he said, I am Father Dan Snow who has preached at St. Mary's Church for 50 years. And St. Peter looked at his list and he smiled and he said, Welcome, Mr. Snow. Take this wool robe and this wooden staff and enter the gates of heaven. Now wait a minute, the priest said. Why does a taxi driver get a better robe and staff than me? I've spent almost my whole life dedicated to the church. And St. Peter responded, up here we work by results. You see, while he drove, people prayed. And while you preached, people slept. So... (laughs) Today, we're back in the book of 1 Corinthians. That's one of them AW jokes right there. Today, we're back in 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul preached to them in the early 50s during his second missionary journey. Now, we know that opposition was pretty fierce there. And the Lord Jesus spoke to him in a vision, assuring him that there were people there that, that he had called. And so he stayed there for about 18 months, teaching them the Word of God. And God used Paul's ministry to establish a church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. It says, There whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Let's pray. Ah, Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity again to come to your word. Lord, we ask that you would nourish us, that you would grow us spiritually, that we would learn something new, not only for our head knowledge, but for heart knowledge, something that we can put into practice, something that hits us deep, in our souls and in our spirits. Holy Spirit, Holy Father, Lord Jesus, we just ask that you forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, help us to understand with clarity your word. And Lord, while I preach, I ask that you would help me to convey your word properly. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Elijah, I'm a little loud up here. Can you turn me down on the mains, please? All right. Life principle today, communion in a holy light without sin. We need to have communion in a holy light without sin. And in order to do that, we have to be humble and selfless so that we won't be judged with the world. To approach communion, to approach Christ in an unworthy manner is sin. Now, we don't like to hear that word sin because it means that I've got to stop doing something or start doing something. I've got to clean something. I've got to surrender something to Jesus. And frankly, I'm about me. We all are. We're a little self-centered at times. Okay, most of the time. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 and 28 And then we're going to stop. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You see, Christianity today in America has a problem. And really, it has lots of problems. But one of the main ones is is that people don't believe God's word anymore. They don't believe what's written there. No, today from pulpits all across America, all you're going to hear is how God wants to bless people. And he does, but that's all you're going to hear. Today all across America, all you're going to hear is that God is love. And he is, but not the love they're thinking of. What is your definition of love? You see, Christian love is not acceptance of sin. It is not bowing to sin. It is not letting a brother or sister live in open sin. It's not allowing unbelievers to think they are believers and not dealing with their sin. Love is calling sin what it is, and that is sin and preaching repentance from sin. That's love. So what is sin? Well, there are two types of sin. There are sins of commission, and that are sins that are done against God. That is, any act or behavior that is against the clear teachings of holy living found in the Scriptures. Any act or behavior that is against the clear mandates of the holy living word found in the Bible. First Peter 1.15 says, But now you must obey holy in everything you do, just as God chose you as holy. For the scripture says you must be holy because I am holy. And then there are sins of omission. That is not doing something you know that God wants you to do. Not doing something you know that God has called you to do. That's a sin of omission. You have omitted that from your life. God wants you to spend time with him. And to not to do so is sin. Some people across all of America will go to church and not crack their Bibles except for Sunday. And in some churches, they never crack their Bibles. Let that sink in for a minute. God wants you in a loving relationship with Him. God wants you to to be loving toward your brothers and sisters in Christ as well. God wants you to gently confront open sin in others' lives. Not stand up there and yell at them, you're a sinner! But you're going to a brother or sister, hey, I see this in your life. That's not what's in the scripture. And we want to do what's in the scriptures. Lovingly restore them. Well, what's the first thing that we need to do? Well, First thing is, and a lot of you could probably quote this scripture with me by heart from now, but Matthew eighteen fifteen, it says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out that offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. You know, we unfortunately have several churches in our denomination who are... In sin the whole church. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me give you an example. There's one very large church in our denomination, the Southern Baptists, um, not too far from us, and they are baptizing openly homosexual couples without calling them to repentance. without saying what you're doing is wrong, and you need to repent and split but they're baptizing them anyway. You see, accepting sin is not loving. It is not discerning the body. Accepting sin like that gives them a false sense, or anybody a false sense of assurance of salvation. Because if you want to live in sin and you don't feel the presence of the Holy Spirit molding you and making you into something new and saying that this is wrong and you need to stop it, then you probably aren't saved, are you? See, a loving Christian would say, this is wrong. Stop it. And, you know, to be a pastor and allow someone to take communion in that manner means not only is the sinner subject to judgment, but so is that pastor and all the leadership of that church. You know, God made this abundantly clear to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17, he says, "'Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel.'" Wherever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Meaning at the Christian's hand. Yet if you have warned the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he will die, since you have not warned him. He shall die in his sin, and his righteous deeds which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. However, if you have warned the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you have delivered yourself. Do you get it this morning? A loving God wishes for us to repent from sin, and to help our brothers and sisters when they wander off into the wrong direction. How many people know sheep are stupid? I mean, let's be honest. And, and we're God's sheep. Now, why does he say that? And I don't, want, I don't want to offend you by calling you stupid, but compared to God, we're all stupid. Let's be honest. All right. Now, a sheep, it doesn't want to wander off. It sees something flashy, and it goes over here, and the herd's over here. And then it sees something else, and it comes over here, and the herd's going that way. And then it sees something else and it comes over here and it hurts way over there. Kind of reminds me of my little dog. He likes to sniff around and before you know it, he's way down there and you're way over there and he's looking around going, where you at? Yeah, I know. But we are like that when it comes to things. We didn't get to this point by being smart. That's right. We didn't get to this point by being smart. <laughs> We've got to Make sure that we look around once in a while and say, Lord, have I wandered off? Lord, I'm looking around and I see brother so-and-so has wandered off. Give me wisdom to know how to help them to come back to the fold. To approach the communion of Christ in an unworthy manner is about two things. It's about your relationship with Christ and your relationship with the other brethren within the church, which is manifest in how you behave. You know, to be guilty of the body and blood of Christ is a huge deal. Yet so often we don't hear those words anymore. We so often hear these words today and, and we let them pass through us like it means nothing But when Jesus died, it was not a humane death, it was not a little thing, it was not just a lethal injection, he fell asleep and that was the end of it. No, it was painful, and it involved lots of gore. For example, the Greek word for blood here is very descriptive. It literally means a gushing and rushing of blood. A large amount, not a trickle, not a paper cut, but a large amount of blood. And let me tell you something, that torment, that gore, was meant for you and me because of our sin. But Jesus took it for us. And you know, to treat that sacrifice and this supernatural event as something that is mundane, that is casual, is not just a slap in the face of God and every Christian throughout history, but it is a grievous sin. May you nor I ever find ourselves so familiar, so desensitized by the language that the Scripture used here, the body and the blood, that we ever treat it as something that is mundane, that is common. Number two, sin in the believer brings judgment. 1 Corinthians 11.29 says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drink judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. To come to the Lord's table with such apathy, such self-centeredness, is a sure way to make sure that you are inviting God's judgment on your own head. Not discerning the Lord's body, not realizing that what you do, it is holy, it is important. It's not something we just take for granted. This judgment from the scripture gives us an example of the judgment that they brought upon themselves. What is it? Well, number one, they were weak in body and they were sick. Some even died. What does God choose some to be weak or sick and why does he choose some to die? I'm going to give you a real theological answer here. You ready? I don't know. Okay? But that's God's business. It ain't mine. It's none of my business. I just don't want to be the one who's weak, sick, or dead. I want to honor God in the communion and in everything I do. I'll tell you this, though, and I can't be dogmatic about it. I have seen where people in the church have, have been mad at one another who haven't made their, their relationship right with God and then they sit down and they do communion like nothing ever happened. There's no repentance, there's no change. I've seen those people judged in, individually, personally, and the church itself being judged corporately as well. You know that you, me, all of us in this room are the body of Christ. Paul will write a little bit further down in chapter 12, verse 27, he's going to say, all of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Did you know that? And we're called here to discern the Lord's body. Paul said this is about, about a couple of times, and said this a couple of times throughout the Scripture, and, and Paul said, that, said more about this a couple of verses earlier than verse 27. In verse 25 he says that there should be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. You see, when one of us is judged, then the entire church is judged with them. Well, how is that? Because you, the person who are being judged, can no longer fulfill your purpose in that local body of believers. You can't do what he's called you to do if you're being judged. And sometimes people wonder why their church isn't growing or or why their church just seems like everything falls apart. Could it be because they've treated the body of Christ unworthily? Could it be that they have taken communion and without making things right with other believers? The church then becomes weak and sick and some churches have died. You know, I looked up the Greek for these words too. You know what weak means? It's to be of small stature. Kind of like me, short, but of small stature. Not strong. Not able to produce the works that someone who is, who is physically able to produce, who is strong bodily. Do you know what sick means? To be sick or to be ill is to be powerless. And let me tell you, I have been really sick, and lately I have been really sick where all I felt like was I was existing. And I had no power to do the things I once did. There were times I didn't have any power to get up and go to the restroom. I just laid there until I couldn't hold it no more. Talk about a powerless state. Some churches are like that. This describes some churches, and many churches across America, and then the last judgment there is death. Dead. Well, what, you know what dead means? It means dead. When you're dead, you're dead. You know, you're done. No life left in you. And that happens every day to churches all over the world. Today, somewhere, there will be a bunch of churches closing their doors who have once been alive, who had once been thriving, even in our Southern Baptist Convention. But they became weak, then they became sick, and then they became dead. They had their doors closed. The quickest way to destroy a church that is thriving, growing, doing things for God, by the way, church there, I mean people. Because the people are the church. The quickest way to destroy it is to have a schism, or a separation, or as we like to call it today, a church split. That's the quickest way to have a problem. You know, don't let that stuff fester. When you've got a problem with somebody, don't let it fester. Get it out of your life. Get that apathy toward Christ and others out of your life too. Get back to your first love. This is what Christ admonished the church at Ephesus to do in the book of Revelation. See, we've been studying the book of Revelation on Wednesdays. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 says this, But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place Among the churches. So how does a church that is weak, sick, almost dead, come back to Christ? The solution is easy. Carrying it out, however, can be hard. If you get every person left in a church to repent, if you get the people to seek God and do what he says, then guess what? Miracles will happen. But it takes the church, the members, the individuals to do it. Well where does one start? Well, we said Matthew 18 before, didn't we? That's where. First, let's start with our sin and confession to God and one to another. That's how it starts. What next? Second Chronicles, chapter seven, verse 14. Did we read that? What's it say? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Then it's time for humility and prayer. You know what the worst part is? Is we don't want to be humble. And for some reason, we don't want to pray. And I've gotten to thinking about that. We don't want to pray because we don't want the Holy Spirit to point out the sin in our lives because we don't want to feel bad because you know you're going to feel bad when the Holy Spirit points out sin. Ah, oh, Lord, I'm sorry I did it again. But if we don't, we're in a worse state than we would be if we just did it. And after all all of this, Paul gives us an oh yeah moment. I love those oh yeah moments. It's like a, a duh, Hallelujah. Thank you for telling me that. I wouldn't have thought about it, but you told me that, and I knew that, and I knew better, but eh, you told me anyway, so I better do it. That's an oh yeah moment for me. He says if we would judge ourselves, we would have no reason to be judged. If we would judge ourselves, we would have no reason to be judged. And we all know that's true. It's always best to come to God on our own than have Him discipline us through life circumstances or discipline us through other things and and all those things that come our way and one way or another. Let me tell you, if you belong to Christ, then you're going to repent, and if you don't, you'll be disciplined, and then you're going to repent anyway. So you may as well do it right the first time, right? But we don't learn that way, do we? No, we we don't. We tend not to. Hebrews twelve five says this. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as His children? He said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't give up when He corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those He loves, and He punishes each one He accepts as a child. And as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as His own children. Who ever heard of a child who was never disciplined by its father?" If God doesn't discipline you as He does all of His children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really His children at all. And since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share... In his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. That's another one of those, duh. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Hey, did your dad or mom ever tell you this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you? Yeah, me neither. My mom never told me that. She just walked whipped me. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, you know there's truth to that, right? I honestly believe God gets frustrated, God gets angry, but He never disciplines out of those things. He disciplines out of love. And I believe it hurts Him more than it hurts us. And that's why He went to the cross so that we could be made new, so that we could be made whole. You know what? I don't like disciplining my kids. You know why I do it? Not just to bust the butts or or get on to them. As we used to say, bust that boy's butt, you know, when you're growing up. They don't do that today. It's not just so we get on to somebody. It's not just so you can bully somebody. I discipline my kids so that maybe they'll be better people than I am when they get my age. That's what I want. Proverbs thirteen twenty four says, Those who spare the rod of discipline hates their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. And you know what? If you're God's, He cares enough to discipline you. And what is it? Humility, number three, humility and selflessness is what God expects of the believer. Humility and selflessness is what God expects of the believer. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 33 says, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Remember, people were coming to these communion dinners. They were kind of like our fellowship dinners, but they would remember Christ in it. And the remembrance of, of, of the body and the blood were treated as common and their their attitudes were wrong, and their spirits were wrong. They were selfish. They were preferring themselves over others. They were even getting drunk during a holy time. They were inebriated. So Paul comes up with a simple solution. What does he say? Hey, eat at home so that you don't take from others, so that there won't be a need for judgment upon the individual believers in the church as a whole. He then says he's going to fix the rest when he gets there. In other words, I'm coming to fix it when I get there. Hang on. He then says he'll fix it. You know, oftentimes, God gives us simple solutions to problems. Sometimes the solution may be hard on us emotionally or physically, but we're going to be better off for it. Matthew 5:29 says this. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You know what I call that? I call that the radical amputation principle or the radical amputation procedure for handling sin. Sometimes you've got to be radical in order to get sin out of your life. To get that temptation to go away and that's okay so long as you're able to serve Christ in holiness now if going down the road you know that you're going to be tempted by some bar that you used to drink at and man it's going to be hard for you not to pull in hey go another way don't go by there go another way you know I was in a circle k a couple of weeks ago maybe longer and there's a bridge between Paisley and the land, and I don't know if, if you know that. It's called the Crow's Bluff Bridge, and it crosses over, um, oh man, just went out of my head, St. John's River, and it is the quickest way to get to the land from Paisley and vice versa. Well, on one day, it went down not once but twice, and it was down for hours at a time. And you wouldn't believe the backups. And what happened was, is it would go up and it come down, but it didn't come down properly. It didn't latch. One side stayed up just a little bit. Happened twice. And so I'm in the Circle K and I say to the cashier, I say, hey, do we know if the bridge is fixed yet? And she goes, no. And then, oh, my goodness, you'd have thought the floodgates open. Everybody in there had their opinion on this bridge. One, one girl, she, she, even, she even said, man, I'm so scared of that bridge, I'll just go the other way. And I looked at her and I went, you know the other way is an hour and a half longer, right? She goes, it'll probably take longer than that to fix the bridge. But, she was right on that, by the way. But, she said, I'm so scared of it, I'll just go the other way. And I got to thinking about that. The other way... Makes you go all the way down 15A, take a left on 19, go down to 40, take a left on 40, cross over the bridge at Astor, then go, to, <laughs> then go down by the springs, and then go down to this 20-mile-long like, dirt road that's washboard just to get to Paisley. And it takes about an hour, hour and a half, depending on how fast you go, compared to the 20-minute ride from Paisley to the land. And I thought, now that's radical amputation right there. She's willing to go that far just to avoid that bridge that she was scared of. How far should we go, Christian, to avoid sin that so easily besets us, Paul says? How far should we go? But you know, when we talk about the sin problem, if you don't know Jesus... You don't know what the sin problem is. But remember this, communion and a holy light. We need to take communion in a holy light without sin. We need to be humble and selfless so that you won't be judged as the ladies come. Folks.